0: Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. How do you know that Jesus is all you need for salvation? How do you know for certain That Jesus is all you need to go to heaven. You might be thinking, well, preacher, I just believe it. Well, I want you to know there are a world of people out there who just don't believe Jesus is all you need for salvation. In fact, there are 1.3 billion Muslims who do not believe. That Jesus is all you need for salvation. That's over four times the population of the United States. Think about that. Four times the population of the United States. Don't believe Jesus is all you need for salvation. There are 900 million Hindus who don't believe Jesus is all you need for salvation. That's three times the population of the United States. There are 300 million Buddhists that don't believe Jesus is all you need for salvation. In fact, there are over four and a half billion people on this planet that do not believe Jesus is all you need for salvation. What if you're wrong? What if Jesus is not all we need for salvation? But Paul was addressing the church at Colossae with just this issue. He was facing people who were teaching that Jesus is not all we need for salvation. Paul had personally never been to Colossae, but the church was young. And during its early infant stages, some false teachers had come, Jewish false teachers. And they were teaching that Jesus is not enough. To be saved. They said, in fact, that Jesus was not God Himself. He was lesser than God. They said that there were angelic beings that you had to placate and please in order to go to God. They said that to placate these angelic beings, you had to follow certain religious diets, certain, observe certain feast days. You had to basically live an ascetic life in order to please these angelic beings and therefore make your way to God. So Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, and what we have is the greatest single passage on the deity of Christ anywhere in Scripture. The greatest single Christological passage in all of Scripture is found in the book of Colossians, and I would ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, and as we look at today, the incomparable Christ, God himself. The incomparable Christ, God himself. As Paul is presenting his argument to these false teachers, he presents a three-pronged argument to show them that indeed Jesus is all one needs for salvation. You see, he goes to the very core of the issue, and that is, is Jesus truly God Himself? If He is, then we don't need anything else. We don't need anyone else but Jesus in order to be saved. And so Paul presents a three-pronged argument for the deity of Christ. His first prong is Jesus is the Is the visible expression of the invisible God. The second prong is that Jesus existed before all creation. Therefore, He must be God. And then thirdly, Jesus is totally and fully God. We're beginning in verse 13 of Corinthians, excuse me, of Colossians chapter 1. I'll ask you to stand in respect for the Word of God as I begin to read in verse 13. For He, and this is God the Father, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, speaking of Christ now, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything, for it was the Father's Good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. You may be seated. The first prong of Paul's argument that Jesus is God Himself is that Jesus is the visible image. Of the invisible God. Paul clearly states in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Now there are two Greek words that are translated into the English word image. One word represents kind of an accidental likeness. It's not something that's intended but rather an accidental resemblance, like you go outside during the summertime and you look up at the clouds and you say, hmm, that's the image of a horse. You know, we've all done that. You've seen certain clouds and you say, man, that looks like a, looks like a dolphin. Well, that looks like a fish or whatever. Now that's purely accidental. That's not intentional and it's far from being an exact representation. And then there's another Greek word for image, the word icon, and we get our English word icon from that, and that means an exact reproduction, an intended likeness, not accidental, but purposeful. In fact, if you look at the penny that I have before you, now that's the likeness, that's the image of Abraham Lincoln, and that didn't just accidentally appear on a penny, did it? No, but someone took a picture of Abraham Lincoln, and they purposely worked on this press to make the exact likeness of Abraham Lincoln so that when the sheets of tin were put, excuse me, of copper were put through the mint, and the press was put against that copper plate an exact representation of Abraham Lincoln came through that's the word icon now when paul says that jesus is the icon the image of the invisible god he is saying that jesus christ is the visible expression he is exact representation He is the exact purposeful reproduction of the invisible God. Now Jesus, the Son of God, is not simply a chip off the block. He is the block himself. Now the disciple John says the same thing over in his gospel in verse 14 of the first chapter. When he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, that word dwelt is the word tabernacled, to pitch a tent is the root meaning of that Greek word. And so what John is referring to is the Old Testament tabernacle. You Remember that? The Tent of Meeting it was called. Why was it called the Tent of Meeting? Because it was at that place where God met with Israel. Where He met with man in the Old Testament. You remember part of that tabernacle there was a structure inside of the curtain area that was called the Holy Place. And then there was a curtain that separated the Holy Place from another section called the Holy of Holies. You Remember that? In the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And on the lid of this Ark, which was shaped like a a box, there were two angels. And it said that God resided between those angels. In fact, there was no natural light in the Holy of Holies. It was the glory of God that would provide the light in that place. And so when Moses would go in and talk with God, he was said to meet with God face to face. Now later in Israel's history, only one person could go into that Holy of Holies, and that was a high priest, and he could only go once a year on the Day of Atonement. After he had sacrificed the blood of, of And he could go in and sprinkle the blood over the top of the ark, the mercy seat, a picture of Christ coming death. But that was a holy place. So when John says to us, the word became flesh, God took on humanity, and he tabernacled among us, he's saying, hey, Jesus was God walking among men. In the Old Testament, He dwelt in the tabernacle. In Jesus' times, He dwelt in the person of Jesus Christ. But notice there's more. And He says, And we saw His glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now I want you to look at this word truth for a moment. The word truth in the Greek literally means not concealing. It's the word conceal, and then it has the a prefix. It's called an aprivative. Like amoral means no moral, a conce- no concealing, not concealing. Truth is what? It's revealing everything that's there. That's what truth is. Truth does not hide anything. Deception, lies are concealing. Truth is not concealing. It's revealing what is. And so when John says, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld His glory, full of grace and the unveiling. You see, this word not concealing carries the idea of pulling back the veil, because what did the veil do? It concealed. But not concealing is pulling back the veil and revealing what's behind it. Now, notice. What John is saying, for those that have the insight, the spiritual ears to hear, he's saying that when Jesus came, He was the tabernacle of God among us. And what He did was, He pulled back that veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, that we might behold God. Now, I want you to realize... That holy place was considered so sanctified that when they would have to dismantle the tabernacle in order to move it to a different place, the Levites were instructed by God that when they took down that curtain that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies, they had to turn away from the ark. They could not look at it or they would die because that's how holy God is, they would take the curtain and they would walk backwards and they would drape it over the Ark of the Covenant. The poles would be sticking out that they would be carried by and then they would pick up the poles. But no one could look on God. But when Jesus came, John says, He took that veil that separated Man from the Holy of Holies from God, and he pulled it back so we could see God. He goes on to say in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now this word explain is, means to lead out. It means to make something fully known. In fact, we get our English word exegesis from it, which is to understand a passage, to take a passage of Scripture and go in and find out what's there and bring the truth out. He is saying that Jesus led God out of obscurity. He led the invisible God out so that we could see God when we saw Him. Because He is God Himself. Now, Jesus said the same thing. You remember when he was about to be crucified and he was talking to his disciples about his coming death and naturally they were concerned. I mean, they'd been with Jesus. They had grown close to him. They depended on him. And Philip, one of the disciples, said, Jesus, just show us the Father and that will be enough. In other words, you're going to be leaving us, but let's let us see the Father. Let us see God. Now, Philip was right on that because, man, if you can see God, you know, He knew God was what he needed. But do you know what Jesus' response to Philip was? Jesus said, Philip, have I been with you so long that you don't realize that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father? Because I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And I don't do anything on my own initiative. In other words, Jesus was saying, Philip! You want to see the Father God, look at me. I am God in the flesh. I am God walking among men. I am God. If you want to see God, behold Jesus. He is a visible expression of the invisible God. You know what that says to me? It says to me, I need to spend more time in the gospel that's where we see Jesus. I need to go back and I need to spend time reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and just looking at Jesus. Just seeing what He does. Listening to what He says. Seeing God. Because I will never, I will never see God any more than I see Him in Jesus. Not visions, not dreams, not new revelation. You want to see God? You look at Jesus. So Paul says the incomparable Christ is God Himself because He is the image of the invisible God. Second prong. The incomparable Christ existed before all creation. Therefore He must be God Himself. Paul says again in verse 13, Excuse me, verse 15. The firstborn of all creation. Now this phrase, firstborn, needs a little explanation. Because when you and I think of firstborn, we usually think of the first in something, right? The firstborn of the family is the first child in that family. So we naturally think, well, firstborn of creation must mean that he's the first thing created. No. Though this Greek word can mean the firstborn in a family... Its primary meaning is one of position and rank. The firstborn in the Roman culture as well as the Jewish culture had a special position and rank in that family. In fact, in the Old Testament, the firstborn inherited twice as much as the others. Now, he was responsible for looking after his parents as well, but he had a special position. He had a special rank. You remember Jacob's two sons? Excuse me. You remember Isaac's two sons, Jacob and Esau? You remember Esau was the oldest, therefore he had the position. He was going to get the double inheritance, but Jacob said, "Man, man, I want that," and he finagled and tricked his way into getting that prominent blessing that was due the first child. And so, the firstborn is that position and right now. This is why it's important to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Because you might say, well, it means he was the first thing created. But if you look in verses 16 and 17, Paul makes it clear that that's not what he means when he says firstborn of creation. For by him all things were created. Now, if Jesus created all things, then he is not a creation himself both in the heavens and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so it's clear that Paul would not contradict himself within two verses. He is not speaking of Jesus being the first thing created, but rather Jesus is the premier inheritor of all That exist. He is the one to whom belongs the right and dignity of the firstborn in relation to every creature. He is superior to all creation, because he is the creator. In Hebrews chapter 1, again we see this same truth. In these last days, has spoken to us in his Son whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the world. And then John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That phrase, in the beginning, does that remind you of anything? Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning is before anything was created. Before anything was created, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word. And Jesus is the Word. The Word became flesh. The Word took on humanity and tabernacled among us. And so it is clear from the teachings of Scripture... That the incomparable Christ existed before all things. Therefore, he is God. So let's summarize so far what we've said. Paul says, Jesus is God himself. First of all, because he's the exact representation of God. None other can be the exact representation of God than God himself. And secondly, he existed before all things. He is the creator, not the creature. Therefore, he must be God. The third prong of his argument is that the incomparable Christ is God himself because he is fully and completely God. Look at verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. In case anybody wonders what fullness he's talking about, in chapter 2, verse 9, he goes on to say, For in him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Here, Paul is launching a full-out attack on the heresy plaguing the church at Colossae. Again, they taught that the deity of God was spread out among various emanations, various spirit beings. Paul says nothing could be further from the truth. The deity of God is not spread out among angelic beings that you've got to placate in order to make it to God. That you've got to worship. No, the fullness of God is in Jesus Himself. The fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in the person of Jesus Christ. Fullness means completeness. It means totality. And since the totality and the completeness of deity is in Christ alone, he must be God himself. He's no lesser being such as angels or man. He is God in human form. Paul says, behold your incomparable Christ. He is God Himself, very God of very God. The Creator of all things, the very stamp, exact image of God, totally, fully God. That tells me that Jesus alone is all I need for salvation all you need for salvation it's not jesus plus church membership it's not jesus plus baptism it's not jesus plus obeying certain rules it's not jesus plus anything it's jesus he alone is all we need for salvation Because in Jesus, God Himself came down and lived among us. And He did what we could not do. He lived a perfect, sinless life. Never sinned in word, thought, or deed. And then He did something for us because He did not deserve to die. Because He'd never sinned. He took our sin upon Himself, God becoming sin for us. And He took that sin upon Himself on that cross, and He experienced the full wrath of a holy God over my sins upon Himself on that cross. And then He came alive from the dead, showing that He defeated sin, That his sacrifice was absolute and total payment for our sins. Because if one sin, think about this now. If one sin had not been satisfied by the death of Jesus, he could not have come alive from the dead. What does the Bible say? The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall surely die. Sin equals death. That's why every one of us in here is going to die. Because we've sinned. Now, if Jesus' death had not satisfied every sin of His elect, then He could not have defeated death. Because one sin left on Jesus would have equaled death. The wages of sin, no matter how small. Is dead. But when Jesus came alive from the dead, that was proof positive that he totally satisfied, totally paid the price for every sin of his people. And then he ascended into heaven at the right hand of the Father, and he intercedes for us. Jesus is all you need for salvation. He did it all. He accomplished everything. And He offers us eternal life as a free gift. The wages of sin is death, but the Scripture goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Have you come to Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation? Are you depending on Jesus plus something else? Come to Him and throw yourself upon His mercy. Say, Lord Jesus, You are God. And I know You did everything because You are God. You accomplished my salvation. And I trust in what You did. So first of all, Because He's God. He's the only one who can save you. And He can save you totally. Doesn't need your help. But secondly, since Jesus is God Himself, the only reasonable, logical response to Him is absolute surrender to Him as Lord. Anything else is ridiculous. Isn't it? To say I believe that Jesus is God And yet not be willing to surrender my job to Him. Does that make sense? Not be willing to surrender my finances to Him. Not be willing to surrender my family to Him. Does that make sense? To believe that He is God Himself. And not be willing to lay all that I am, all my ambitions, all my hopes, all my dreams before Him and say, Jesus They're yours. Now you take what's of you and give it back to me. What's of me, you keep. What dreams are mine and not yours, you keep them. What ambitions are mine and not yours, you keep them. But those that reflect your will, give them back. And I will walk in obedience to you. Are you willing to surrender all to Christ, who is God Himself? Have you done so? Is there any area of your life that you're holding back? Because you're afraid if you give it to Him, He might say, That's not of me. That's of you. And the truth is, we can only be free when we're in surrender to Christ. If you're not surrendered, you're a slave of your own desires. True freedom is total surrender to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask You to move in our midst. Reveal to us the Lord Jesus who is God, stir our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we stand and sing together. I hope that this song is your prayer this morning. It is your response to the truth that you've heard. Think about the words, and will you make them your prayer?